Genesis chapter 40. Well, let's just pray again real quick, you know. Father, we just praise you for today. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for preserving it, Lord. We thank you for bringing men that you chose. Bring it, Lord. We thank you for bringing men that you chose at different points in history and providentially guided them to produce this that you have given to us and preserved. So we pray that it would be beneficial to us today. We thank you for your spirit and pray that your spirit would just open up our hearts and bring to mind things that we each individually should be thinking about today. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. So after last week when Manny preached, we had Joseph being thrown into prison, right? Potiphar's wife. How many people remember what happened? And if you don't remember last week, how many people remember the story of Joseph? So if you've been in church for any period of time, you've heard this message many, many times, right? Well, so now we join Joseph in prison after being accused by Potiphar's wife. So I want to bring out a few things about Joseph before we get into the text. There's two people in the Bible that never really have anything negative written about them, and that's Joseph and Daniel, besides Christ, of course. I'm talking about other characters. They don't have any negative actions or sins attributed to them as the Bible records the stories about them. Joseph had his coat of many colors, right? And we use that as a very vivid illustration inside of Sunday school classes and whatever for little kids to remember Joseph and his coat of many colors. And, but it was really an overseer's coat. So even when he was 16 and 17 years old, his father put him in charge of his brothers. That's why when he finally got thrown into the pit as a slave and became a slave, he was going out to go check on all of his brothers. And he took his job seriously because he went out to Shechem and they weren't there. Uh, I know a lot of you know, 17-year-olds, and even when I was a 17-year-old, I probably would have went, okay, well, they're not here. I'm going back home. But he didn't. Are we gone? Oh, okay, good. I heard that weird noise. Um, so he, he, went, he didn't go back home. He went out and he talked to people in the area. He's like, have you seen my brothers and their flocks? And then he went and found them. So he was very faithful to the jobs that he'd been given. He always performed them in an excellent manner. And we see that over and over. And it's not for no reason because we see over and over that God also you know, powerfully blessed him and made the work of his hands be pleasing to those and be successful in everything he did. Joseph also, like Daniel, was giving meaningful dreams. And he was also given the interpretation of those dreams, not just for his own dreams, but for the dreams of others. And at the beginning of the next chapter, which I think Johnny's going to be preaching on, this episode from the time that he was taken by his brothers and sold into slavery until the, beginning of, or the end of this chapter is approximately 13 years. So all of this stuff's been going on over a long period of time. Now, another thing that if you've been in the church for any period of time, you've heard about typology, right? Someone being a type of Christ. Has anybody heard that before? So typology is just another technique and another way that people use to study the Bible, and it can be useful at times. Some people can take it too far and look for a type of Christ in everything and anything, and, but Joseph is one that has often been compared to be a type of Christ, and if we look at those comparisons, he was falsely accused. 
right? Just like Jesus was falsely accused. He spent three days in a pit before he was sold into slavery. His brothers, he was in the pit for three days. Just like Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish and Jesus was three days in the grave. And Jesus said, when they asked for a sign, he said, you're not going to be given a sign except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And that was the sign. So this three-day motif is here and it's a connection. And it's actually brought out again within this text that we're going to look at. Joseph was loved by his father but hated by his brothers. Jesus was also loved by his father and hated by his brothers. Two kinds of brothers, the Israelite brothers, but also his real brothers, because his brother James did not become a Christian until after the resurrection, and his family kind of like, you're crazy, dude. So he had that too. And now I'm going to read this quote from uh, an old, what they call a church father. He lived from 333 to 397 AD. His name was Ambrose, and he's best known for being one of Augustine's teachers, his main teacher. This is related to the coat that Joseph wore. Accordingly, even at that time, the cross that was to come was prefigured in sign. And at the same time that he was stripped of his tunic, that is, of the flesh he took on, so he's comparing Joseph's coat to Christ taking on the flesh of people, becoming a man. And then he says, he was stripped of the handsome diversity of colors that represented the virtues. Therefore, his tunic, that is his flesh, was stained with blood, but not his divinity. And his enemies were able to take from him his covering of flesh, but not his immortal life. So this was written, you know, 300 AD, that century. Um, and you see, this is, this is an ongoing thing that people have said about Joseph in relationship to Christ. So, where are we going today? Well, we're going to talk about revelation of God. We're going to talk about redemption and judgment. We're going to talk about patience and faith and action. And we're also going to talk about communion. Because as I was reading through this, and you'll see the imagery and the symbolism that's in this passage, God just kept hammering home on me about communion, about communion, about communion. So we're definitely going to talk about that too, even though it might seem to be a little outside of the topic. So Genesis chapter 40, verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. Now we don't know what the offense was, but these positions, so cupbearer Nehemiah, was the cupbearer for the king of Persia in the book of Nehemiah. This was actually a very high position, and he wasn't just the guy who stood there and somebody would pour wine in a cup and he'd taste it to make sure it wasn't poison and give it to the king. He was actually in charge of all of the vineyards and all of the production, pretty much of all alcohol in the kingdom that was underneath the king's, the king's system and running the vineyards and making sure that they had the, what's the old word? Victuals for the king's table. And the baker also was in charge, not just of bread, he was in charge of pretty much all the food that wound up on the king's table and production of that. And these were traditionally very highly placed. They were direct advisors of the pharaoh. Like daily, he would talk to them, and they would provide him with advice on running his kingdom. And there's another person in the story that also is in that level, and that's Potiphar, who was Joseph's master, who put him in prison. 
he is the king's king of or the uh, captain of the guard, which was also the king's executioner or assassin. And the prison that Joseph was in was likely his prison. There were others in the kingdom, but this prison was usually a one-way trip. You go there, sometime later you're executed. That's how you get out. But he would have been very well acquainted with those two, the baker and the cupbearer, because they were all in the council of Pharaoh in the court on a daily basis. Verse two, and Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. Verse four, the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. Well, it's obvious now, and we mentioned this before, Potiphar obviously still trusts Joseph. So we saw in the end of last chapter, Potiphar put Joseph in charge of the entire prison and didn't worry about the prison anymore. So he did the same thing with Joseph in his house. Joseph gets accused. I feel like Potiphar was backed into a corner because it's highly unlikely that his wife did not engage in these kinds of activities other times, and he knew what was going on. So he knew Joseph was innocent. So what did he do? He takes him from his position in charge of his whole house, puts him in charge of the whole prison, and didn't worry about it anymore. Joseph's got it. It's good to go. And it said God blessed him in all of that, and he made his hands successful. So what does he do? He takes his two court officials that get thrown in prison, and he says, all right, Joseph, you are going to take care of these two while they're in prison. You're going to minister to them. You're going to serve them. These are my friends. This is how I interpret this, that he wanted Joseph to take care of them because he trusted Joseph and the way Joseph was going to deal with it. And obviously, they weren't feeling too good about life right now. And the last part of verse 4, the last sentence says, they continued for some time in custody. Remember, I said by the time, from the time that Joseph was taken by his brothers until the time he gets out of prison is about 13 years. So he was in this. We don't know exactly how long he was in Potiphar's house running that. And we don't know how many years he was in prison. We just know that in the combination, there was a lot of years in here. So he's definitely having to deal with a lot of things. And where are we right now, geographically, in this story? Egypt. So let's take a little sidebar, because I'm up here. <laughs> cosmic geography. Have you heard that term before? Cosmic geography? This is talking about the relationship between the way God has distributed things on the earth with the spiritual realms. And it's important. So Deuteronomy chapter 32, this kind of provides part of the background and the worldview for cosmic geography. Verse 7, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave, all to, gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion was his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So at Babel, God assigned the sons of God, those divine beings, to all the nations. And he said, I'm not taking any of these nations. You guys are in charge of them now, and you're going to be held accountable for how they're ruled. I'm going to create my own people. And that's when he called Abram. That was Genesis chapter 12. 
So Egypt is one of those nations. Egypt is under the authority of the Egyptian gods, and that was ordained by the Most High God. He put them in charge of Egypt. But now what he's doing in this is he is going to directly intervene into this because he's sovereign over all. And we see in the New Testament, God's plan is to reclaim the nations. He says it in the Old Testament. He says it in the New Testament. And since he's sovereign, he, he has no problem visiting these people in this story and, and providentially working as he creates this people that he said, I'm going to create in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Psalm 82.6 says, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. Same language. Psalm 89.5. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome above all? all who are around him. So that reminds me of a story of Naaman the Syrian and Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 4. And Naaman, he was a high official and he had leprosy. And so he had taken some Jewish servants and one of them was a young girl that were now under his control over in Syria. And she said, you know, if he just went to see the prophet in Israel, he'd be cured. And his servants told him, and so he told his boss, king of Syria, and he said, all right, let me send a letter to the Israelites, and you can go get cured. So he sends a letter to the king of Israel, and he says, I'm sending to you my servant Naaman, please cure him of leprosy. And the king's like, what? Excuse me? I'm not God. I'm not in control of all this. I can't do any, what? They're going to come wipe us out. And Elisha says, Oh, that's fine. Send him to me. We'll let him know there's a prophet in Israel. So the guy gets, he's got a bunch of donkeys. He fills them with thousands and thousands of shekels of silver and gold and 10 suits of clothes and all this stuff. He makes the trek over there. And when he gets there, Elisha sends out a messenger. He doesn't even come and see him. And he says, go dip in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be cured. And Naaman gets all mad because he's like, first of all, he doesn't even come out to meet me. I'm important. And second of all, aren't the rivers where I live better than this pitiful excuse for a river? Why would I do this? This is ridiculous. And his servants say, hey, boss, you know, if he'd have told you to do some crazy thing like scale a mountain or go slay a dragon, you'd have done it. So just go dip in the water. It'll be fine. And the worst thing that can happen is you're not cured of leprosy and you're wet. So he goes and he dips in the water seven times. He comes out and he's cured of the leprosy. Then Elisha comes out to meet him. And he says, take all this stuff. And Elisha says, no, I'm not taking any of this stuff. It's fine. He said, well, I'm only going to worship the God of Israel from now on. I will only make sacrifices to the God of Israel from now on. Okay? Verse 17 of chapter, 2 Kings chapter 4. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt sac offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. And then he says, in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. This is another matter. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, so that was a, a God of Syria, leaning on my arm, 
and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant for this matter. So two things. He says, I want two mule loads of dirt. And when I'm in the temple and I have to be there and I have to bow, let the Lord forgive me for doing that because I'm no longer worshiping that God. I'm only worshiping the God of Israel. Why did he ask for two mule loads of dirt? Does that seem odd to anyone? Why he would want? That's right. He wants the dirt from Israel because this geography, I said cosmic geography, it had to do with the actual division on the ground of the nations and the gods in charge of those nations. So if he went back to Syria, he would be on the ground dedicated to the god Rimmon who is in charge of that, and he couldn't worship the god of Israel in his mind, in his worldview, on that ground. He had to have ground from Israel. So he brought back ground so he could lay it on the ground and he could worship God. This was part and parcel of their understanding of everything that's going on here. And Joseph would have known this. When he's in prison, he's in Egypt, he knows he's under the authority of these other gods. So God is going to work in this even though it wasn't allowed, right? That's how people would have thought of it. And there's another one in 1 Samuel 26 with David. He goes to Akshish and acts like a crazy man. Does anybody remember that story? We preached on that a few years ago. He says, now therefore let my Lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, he may accept, my, he may accept an offering. But if it is men... May they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. So it was a concern David had, even though it wasn't true, he was never going to lose his share in Israel. But when he went to this other country under the Philistine rule, he's like, how am I going to worship God? I'm not, on, I'm not in Israel. I'm not in the Holy Land. What am I going to do? It was a concern that he had. This was part of their worldview. All right, so with that underpinning of all of this stuff going on in the background, let's go back to verse 5 and get into the narrative. So now we have our cupbearer and our baker, and one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? So we have a few things. First of all, they wake up, they know they had significant dreams. They weren't normal dreams. And they knew that they needed to be interpreted. So this is God first inserting these dreams into people that did not believe in him, but believed in a completely different set of gods. But God is working in Joseph's life for a very specific purpose. Also, Joseph knows these guys very well, right? He could look at them immediately and be like, you guys look depressed. Did you not sleep well? What's going on, right? He, he knew them, and he had a relationship with them. Also, he is going to exhibit some compassion for them. He wants to solve the problem. So he's asking, Why, what's up, guys? And they said to him, verse 8, We have had dreams, but there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Bummer, dude. I stay away from interpreting dreams. It gets me in trouble. 
No, no, he didn't say that. He said, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. Joseph very easily could have said that. What happened the last time he interpreted dreams for people? He was thrown into a pit, going to be murdered. One of his brothers said, no, let's not murder him. Sold into slavery, goes to Potiphar's house as a slave, gets thrown in prison for doing nothing wrong, and now he's in prison. You know, that's what, that's what interpreting dreams got him. But Joseph is faithful, and he's faithful to God's purposes in his life and the gifts that God's given him. Even though he could have kept his mouth shut because things didn't work out so well in the past from his perspective, he was willing to accept whatever God had in store for him, right? So let's talk a little bit about Joseph's patience. We're talking years and years and years of him being falsely accused and being in these situations that he knows he's innocent. You know, there, there's the joke that everyone in prison is innocent. Just ask him. But he really was. He didn't do anything. He has integrity. He's always getting in, trusted with more responsibility. And he executes those responsibilities well. Is there a lesson for us in that? Impatience is not a virtue. Impatience is not a virtue. Trust and hope are the foundation of patience. They give us the power to persevere and endure, not in bitterness, not in despair, but with expectation of what God is going to do in the future when he makes good the promises that he has given us, right? That is the, that's the basis of patience. It's not sitting there in apathy going, sometime this is gonna change. It is trusting and hoping and waiting and waiting and waiting, right? And we have that same thing. We have to wait for the coming of Christ and we have to do it in trust and hope. It isn't gonna, we don't know when it's gonna happen. We just know that it's gonna happen. That's our trust and our hope. Joseph also, his integrity, right? You've heard it said, integrity is what you do when no one is looking, right? How do you behave? What do you do when there's no one around that's gonna call you into account and no one's gonna find out? But he's demonstrated it time and time again, and even now in the prison, he's helping other prisoners. And he was trying to solve problems and provide compassion. So just try to remember that, patience and trust and hope as we continue on. Genesis, so this is the verses from the previous chapter, Genesis 39, that explain the whole situation about where Joseph finds himself and what God is doing. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So this is showing God's perseverance for us, steadfast love. That means no matter what his subjects do, he still provides the love because he promised that he would do that, right? And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made him it succeed. Can God do that for us? Yes. Does God do that for us? Yes. And when we fail and fall flat on our face, 
Is that also part of what God is doing in our lives? Absolutely it is. Those are, I would say, the most important part of what God is doing in our lives because those are the things that make us learn and grow and react to the pain and react to the disappointment and become closer and closer to what God wants us to be as he remakes us into the image of Christ. Let's jump to verse 9. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, so now we have God revealing something in a supernatural way inside of the heart of an enemy territory. That's what's happening. In my dream, there was a vine before me, and on that vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. It's like a time-lapse photography of these vines coming up, is what he saw. Verse 11, Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed them in Pharaoh's hand, placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And that was the first imagery in this passage that reminded me of Christ and reminded me of communion and the vines and the branches and all those things, right? That's when God started to throw those things on me, even though this passage is definitely not talking about communion. Then Joseph said to him, verse 12, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. And this is a pretty awesome interpretation if you're the cupbearer. He's like, sweet. How many days? Three days. Three days until redemption for the cupbearer. And then Joseph makes a personal plea. Verse 14, only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I've done nothing that should, they should put me into the pit. So he's like, help a brother out, guys. Please, you got this great interpretation. I was able to interpret your dream for you. You were all freaked out, and now you're super happy. Tell Pharaoh, get me out of this prison. Now, I said before that there isn't anything negative mentioned of Joseph in the scriptures as God relates his narrative. But as I was reading and studying and I was reading some Jewish sources, they do have one negative thing to say about this particular verses. And I don't agree with their interpretation, but I just wanted you guys to know this is floating around out there. That they say that when he asked him for this help to ask Pharaoh, that he was engaging and trusting in men instead of God. That he should have just asked God. He shouldn't have asked this guy to help him out. So just so you know that that's out there, but I don't particularly agree with it. I think that our relationships and our community, God primarily works in our lives through other people in our lives. So talking to other people about the situations you're going through and asking them to help when they can help, I think that's perfectly reasonable. But Joseph knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is going to come to pass in three days. He has no doubt whatsoever. And he, so he's like, I can get out of here now. God can use this to pull me out of here. Verse 16, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he's like, sweet, it's my turn. This is going to be great. He said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. 
So birds were sacred in Egypt. And so you couldn't kill them. You couldn't chew them away. And people did carry stuff, food, on their heads in baskets. And the birds would fly down when they crossed the temple courts and try to eat the food. So this is like a pretty um, normal kind of a scene in his head. Now the words in Hebrew for the baskets, depending on your translation, it might say white baskets. Some, some translators translate it wicker. Most people say, because the word in Hebrew says that the baskets had holes in them. And so people say, oh, they must have been made of wicker because they have little holes. But the word has more of a connotation of they were not great in great shape. And the word white that is in some translations isn't even in the Hebrew. So we're not totally sure about that, but it still, it was noted in the, in the prophecy that these baskets had holes in them. Birds, there's a lot of birds that are listed as unclean in the law, right? And you have Matthew chapter 13 in the parable of the sower. And the bird comes down and takes the seed. And when Jesus explains it, to the, to the disciples later, he says, well, that's the evil one who is coming to, to take this word out of people's hearts. So birds could have a negative connotation, but then you have the image of the paraclete, the dove coming down on Christ, which is a positive thing. And, G- and God said, what about the sparrow? They don't work, but God clothes them and they're beautiful and not one of them falls to the ground without God knowing and how much more valuable are you? So birds could be positive, they could be negative in the scripture, right? It's not always one or the other. All right, so now Joseph's going to interpret this dream, which isn't as good. Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days, three days again. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Verse 20, on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of his chief cupbearer and the head of his chief baker among his servants. So this was a standard practice according to the archeology span that we've done and translated things. Pharaoh would often on his birthday, certain Pharaohs did this, not all of them, they would pull prisoners out of the prisons on their birthday. And some they would pardon, and some they would not. So when it says he lifted up their heads, that means he brought them out of prison, got them cleaned up, put them in front of the court, and then rendered judgment. Verse 21, he restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And Johnny preaches next week, And verse 1 says, about two years later, so that's how long it takes between this situation happening and Joseph being remembered. But it does all come true, just as Joseph revealed. And another interesting thing I learned, there are people that interpret this passage and they say that if Joseph would not have been there to interpret the interpretation for these guys, it wouldn't have happened. It would not have come to pass. That's another one I'm like, eh, I don't know. It seems to me that God would have made this happen regardless. But he used the revelation and he used the interpretation for his own glory and his own purposes. And this is what sparks this guy to remember Joseph two years later 
So it is still part of the divine plan that God is laying out for his people Israel. This is the one linchpin right now. Joseph is all alone in a foreign kingdom. He has no one with him. He has no children. He has no brothers. They're all gone. If something bad happens to Joseph, what happens to the line of Israel and the line of Christ? God would have to come up with some other way to do it. So he's preserving Joseph. This is what he's doing. This is his divine power coming into fruition. So let's talk about the imagery in these dreams. We have vines, we have branches, we have grapes, we have bread. We also have themes of redemption and judgment or damnation. We have the three days, Jonah in the belly of the fish, Christ in the tomb, Joseph in the pit, and now we have three-day deadlines for either redemption or destruction in these revealed prophetic dreams. These are the revelations from a divine God who sees all the outcomes of every decision that's ever been made or could be made, and he's guiding these events in Joseph's life to create his people Israel in the midst of other nations. Now, revelation from God requires decisions. Do you believe it or do you reject it? You have to decide that when you, things are revealed to you. Revelations require actions. How do you behave when things are revealed to you? Do you go about your life in the same way as you did before? Or does it change your behavior? Was not Christ revealed to you like he was revealed to me? I didn't know about Christ. I grew up in a house where nobody went to church. It wasn't a thing we did. We had no Christian anything. None of our relatives, like, it wasn't there. So I didn't become a Christian or even get introduced to the church until me and my wife started going to church as 20-somethings, 21 years old. So all the stuff in the Bible that I learned and started to learn, it was all being revealed to me. And there were two revelations going on. There was a revelation of man following God's call to tell other people about Jesus and then there was a revelation of the Holy Spirit in my heart that was opening up the truth to what it was. Did my life change? Does your life change? Does it need to change more? These are the questions that we wrestle with. This is what Paul says. You've got to run the race because you don't want to run the race in vain. Right? You've got to run the race. So... We have to continually evaluate our hearts and make sure, yes, I am actually submitting to the Holy Spirit and letting the Holy Spirit change me over time as a reaction to the revelations that God's giving me. What does Scripture reveal to you? I mean, the text of the revelations are all in the past. Like, this book's been around for 2,000 years, right? But they still speak of things that are yet to come in some cases, and they're often revealing things in our own hearts. It comes out of the scripture through the power of the Holy Spirit. These are revelations that we have to deal with. And in the imagery in here, obviously the redemption of the cupbearer, that makes me think of Christ. He revealed to the disciples what was gonna happen to him. And one of the ways he did that was what? 
the Last Supper, communion. He said, this is what's going to happen, boys. Pay attention. 1 Corinthians 11.23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So you have the cup and the wine. This is what we use for communion or grape juice. It doesn't actually matter what we specifically use because we're doing it for a reason, for a remembrance of Christ. And the blood is very, 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 very important. Hebrews 11.22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. That means that the blood of Christ is the instrument God used to redeem our sins. We would not have eternal life if it wasn't for the literal blood of Christ that was shed on the cross, right? And there's these things we see in this case. We have one guy, three days later, he's raised up and gets his job back, and the other guy is executed. We have rejection. We have redemption. The thief on the cross, how many thieves were there? Two. What did one of them do? He scoffed. What did the other one do? He said, Lord... Remember me when you come into my king, into your kingdom. So here's people making choices with the same information. One is rejecting it, one is accepting it. God brings people to the point where they can make those choices. His sovereign hand works in people's lives, and he's working. And then he reveals things to your heart, and then you have to make, you have to do something with all of that. The bread symbolizes in communion Christ's body that was broken for, his, for us because he said his body was true food. So I'm not saying that the cup in the revelation was a positive thing about redemption and the bread was a negative thing about judgment. I'm not trying to draw that parallel just to make sure nobody gets the wrong idea. But the cup does say to me in my heart as I'm reading it, it made me think of eternal life. It made me think of the blood of Christ. It made me think of what he did for me on the cross. And the body that was broken made me think of the fact that God revealed in advance, in many cases thousands of years in advance, what was going to happen to Christ on the cross. He revealed it in the prophets, like especially Isaiah, and then it came to pass. And we're looking at it all in the past, right? This is all old hat to us. But for the people that were at the time these things were happening and before, this was all revelation, just like these guys got revealed things to them by God and Joseph interpreted for them. We need to remember that. We need to remember that God had revealed all these things and he's still revealing things to us today. All right, I'm gonna pray. I have the worship team come on up. And then I'm going to come back up after the first song and lead us in communion and read a passage of scripture that I think I would like us to meditate on this week. So let me pray.
Father God, we praise you so much for what you did for us on the cross. We praise you for the fact that you have brought us into your family and made us your children. You're doing that for more people, Lord, and you've done it for millions upon millions of people in the past. So we thank you for that. We pray that you would bless this time of worship, Father, that we sing praises to your name, Lord, and together with our brothers and sisters, we also are going to take communion, Father, and we just want to remember you, Lord, and not forget and not get complacent and not quit having things be revealed to us and realizing what your word is actually doing in our lives, Father, and your drawing and your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, I mentioned before, communion is a visible reminder to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When is that exactly? Does anyone have that appointment on their Google calendar? No. And we need to exhibit patience in waiting for that, in hopeful anticipation. But as I read that passage in 1 Corinthians, the little phrase in verse 25, it says, in the same way he took the cup, comma, after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So they broke the bread, and then they ate dinner. And then after supper, he did the cup. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. So I want us to take this a little bit farther this week. And whenever you're eating dinner, how many people pray before dinner? We all pray before dinner. How many people think about the prayer they pray before dinner? Not as many. A lot of people are just like, this is hilarious. When I was a kid, there was a family that I spent a lot of time with growing up, and they were nominally Catholic. They never went to church, but they always prayed before dinner, and they always said the exact same prayer. Bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts we are about to receive through the bounty of Christ our Lord. Amen. That fast. That's how they prayed before dinner every night. It wasn't a meaningful remembrance of God's gifts. It was a thing they did because it was a duty. So we don't want to be complacent like that. So this week, while we're eating our dinners and our lunches and our breakfasts, think about God when you're eating and drinking. Think about what Jesus did and remember his sacrifice and his resurrection. So now we also have this imagery that I've talked about. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this passage, and I want you guys to close your eyes and listen to the passage and be thinking about this when you're taking communion. And this is a very familiar passage to a lot of people. This is John 15. John 15, 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. 
By this, is my, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And two quick things out of that. In verse 2, he says, Every branch that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will bear more fruit. What is pruning? This is discipline. This is God putting you through trials so that you can become more like him. So part of God's blessing in our lives is the fact that we're going to go through trials and we're going to have to deal with hardship because that's how we become more like him. And the last sentence in verse 11, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So even in those trials, our joy may be full because of what Christ has done for us and because of the relationship that we have. So as we listen and participate in more worship and you're taking communion, be thinking about this imagery of the vine and the branches and what Jesus is to you. And if you don't have that relationship and this imagery doesn't mean anything to you, come talk to one of us. I'll be over here. We can pray. There's lots of other people that would talk about what this means and what I'm talking about and why it seems like it's so important to me because it is. All right, let's continue. Thank you.